Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 220. This is a very special episode to kick the year off. It's information packed, this episode. This episode is with the plyo guy, Matt McInnes-Watson. And Matt came on, we discussed, well, first of all, we did some myth busting. So we talked about some myths around plyometrics and Matt gave his experience and point of view on those. We then talked about how Matt would prepare himself from when he used to be playing football with knowing what he knows now. We spoke about what stands out from players like Mbappe, obviously his speed, but what around that, why is he so effective? We also talked about some exercises. So we talked about some exercises that Matt would recommend to keep him right away through the season. And then also exercises that possibly you'd bring him at off-season or maybe um, points in the season where you have a window of opportunity, a couple of weeks where there's no fixtures, which I know doesn't happen very very often. But if there is opportunities like that, we spoke about how he would optimise those as well. And then we also touched on working with different types of players, working with players that are your powerful players, your fast players, but also technical players and how the approach would differ in terms of plyometric training. So loads of great information in this one, and I hope you enjoy the episode with Matt. Before we get into it, tickets are still available for our upcoming networking event on Tuesday the 31st of January, 6 till 9pm at Huddersfield Town. We've got three brilliant presenters at the, at the event. Head of Physical Performance, Paul Bauer. Head of Academy Physical Performance, Luke Dobson and also Head of Strength, Callum Adams. They're all going to be presenting for us around the alignment of development and performance in professional football. So the three presentations will fall in line under that under that title. So you'll learn some great stuff from the guys. There are tickets still available. At the time this podcast goes out, they are the, still the early bird price. So get your ticket by going to footballfitfed.com. Click the shop tab and the tickets are available in the network uh, networking events section on the website. So make sure you go and confirm your place. Also, please, if you haven't done so already, head over to iTunes and leave us a review. A review. We've got 62 reviews on there at the moment. I want to try and get it to 100 as quick as we can. So I'd really appreciate your help on this one. Head over to iTunes, search for the podcast, click the five stars and just leave a short comment. Might be around the guests you've enjoyed the most, the topic you've enjoyed the most, or just a general comment will do. Post it, because I really would appreciate it. And also, any colleagues, friends that you can get to do the same would be amazing. It just helps boost the profile of the podcast, and it helps get continue to get the quality of guests that we, we can attract to the podcast as well. So go and do that for us, please, if you haven't done it already. Just before we get into the episode, I want to say a massive thank you to our sponsors, Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction for recovery? Hytro developed the world's first BFR wearable, unlocking the recovery benefits of BFR to support athletes. BFR is no longer just for one-to-one physio or rehab. Hytro allows teams to use this safe and scalable sports BFR device post-exercise to dramatically enhance recovery. Whether in the changing room post-game, during away game travel, in the hotel or at home, Hydro has created a simple and effective tool 
that allows BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously, safely, and more conveniently than ever before. So you can check them out at hytro.com, that's H-Y-T-R-O.com, or email Warren on warren at hytro.com to find out how Hytro BFR can give your athletes a competitive edge. Go and give the guys a follow also over on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, at Hytro. Um, and also a massive thank you to Rezzle, our sponsors. They're doing some incredible work. Go and check them out at Rezzle over on social media. And let's get into episode 220 with Matt McInnes-Watson. Rezzle is the world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Whatever your team, your sport, your ability, improve your game and train like a pro. Rezzle, Rezzle. Reactions, performance, accuracy, stamina, resilience. Train at home in the Rezzle Sports and Fitness VR Training Arena. Search Rezzle, R-E-Z-Z-I-L. Harder, stronger, smarter. The world's number one virtual reality sports trainer. Available now on MetaQuest. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 220 and happy new year to everyone. This is the first episode of 2023 and I've got a very special guest today, the plyo guy, Matt McInnes-Watson. Matt, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for calling me special. I've never been, never been called special on a podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've just been saying before we started recording, I've followed... <laughs> Um, the work that you put out since you were on David, on David Gray's podcast. And ever since listening to that, which I've listened to a couple of times, I was like, I need to get Matt on and have a chat and, and just relate it to football and, and suck out as much information as we can from you. So that's my aim of the podcast. But I really appreciate you you coming on and doing it because I know you've got quite a bit going on at the moment. No, no, I appreciate, appreciate you having me on. It's, uh, it's always nice to, to go, on to a, go on to a different podcast and and, and speak to different communities and this is I always find this is a is a way for me to like constantly develop what my what I think my knowledge is or where I can fit my knowledge into into different spaces um and football is primarily my first love anyway it's what I grew up playing so it's uh it's always nice to kind of come back to that and be like yeah I, I feel like I understood football as a, as a youngster so um you know seeing seeing things now from a different kind of lens and perspective um just in terms of the the journey that I've been on and, and then coming back to to football um it is always nice to to do that so I appreciate you having me on no not at all Matt just with that in mind can you give us a little bit of background on yourself yeah um so I I'm now pr- primarily uh, a coach performance kind of consultant if you want to call it that it, yeah it's a you know, I, I help coaches and I and I help athletes um, all over the place. Um, where, whether it's from like you know football, American football, basketball, um, ice skating, almost almost kind of anything that is relatively dynamic and powerful. Um, and that that's come from a a background of me being um, primarily a high jumper when I was I'd say in my kind of athletic prime. Um, although I'm only thirty. 31 um I feel like that was my prime and I'm not so <laughs> so much there anymore uh, so and, and and having a daughter this year definitely shows that I'm not in my prime now um <laughs> so yeah and and that's really guided um a background of, of high jump and the the coaching and mentoring that I had from my coach within athletics and track and field 
um, has really guided me to develop the the skills, um, push me towards the educational things that I wanted to learn um, when it comes to power, speed, plyometric training in general. Um, yeah, and it's kind of, it's really having a bit of a niche in that area is, has opened a lot of doors for me to, you know, show my, you know, I do have other skills in being able to, to coach strength conditioning based stuff. Um, and I would, I would never say I'm necessarily a, a skills based coach when it comes to any, any individual sport apart from track and field. But again, people might argue that oh, there's not many skills in comparison to what you would see in football, but um, you know, we, we, we have the, the specific demands of our sport as well. Um, and track and field is, is my domain in that. So, yeah, and I and I became a high jumper um, because I was I got a little bit sick of football. I, I got I was it was too much of it in my life. My dad kind of drove football into me from a young age, and I'm sure you know there's a lot of people listening that are probably the same. Um, and I just got to a stage where it was I got to sixth form college in the UK, and I was like I wanted to try something different. And, and my friend said to me, "Have oh, you tried basketball?" And I got into basketball through through dunking a basketball the first time I'd ever really tried it. Um, found out that you need to start basketball probably the same age that I started football and not at 17 because I was just a, I found out quickly that I was just an athlete running up and down the court um doing you know the dirty work or athletic based stuff like jumping a lot diving on balls and stuff so that transitioned into me being introduced to high jump when I was 18 um, which again you could say is potentially a bit too old um to start start a sport but yeah I kind of had a, a career that, that should have been would have been could have been sort of thing um and yeah it developed me becoming a coach um I was speaking to someone yesterday actually about this I think I always had a coach's mentality in me right I would have a training group around me and I was always looking at people and trying to help them I was always like oh you know if, if the coach wasn't there in that given moment trying to help others trying to solve problems for them um and it's kind of that's kind of led me to where I am now it it led to my coach retiring, me then taking over that responsibility of the training group that we had, me retiring and then becoming the coach of that group. And then, yeah, I moved into um, S&C stuff and, and now running a business that's primarily kind of educational. Um, we, do, we do offer a lot of programs as well, but yeah, just trying to guide other people through that lens that I think is really valuable from learning about physical movement in in track and field and seeing how you can take some of that and and put it into into sports like football or, or pitch invasion based games I think there's a lot of lessons there already for people around obviously you've now got a business but that's come from a natural sort of interest and intrigue into a, into an area hasn't it so I think there's a lot because I think people go the other way don't they, they think I've got to have a business, I've got to have a company, what's it going to be, rather than it being sort of naturally developing from what, what you've done? Yeah, it, do you know what? And it, and it was really, really a case of, like I started to, I think it was probably about six months before the big COVID hit. I, I had a I had a guy that I was helping out with and he's um, big in the in like the basketball dunking community online um, and, and runs, a, runs his own business and, and had done so for about a year. Um, and I was helping him with some plyometrics and, and speed and power stuff. And he said, you've got such a lot of information that people don't necessarily have that. It's not necessarily they didn't have that knowledge, but they didn't have that kind of point of view or angle to, to look at plyometrics and dynamic movement from. There was the traditional kind of jumping on and off of boxes stuff that everyone kind of recirculated. Um, and he said, you know, he kind of pushed me to 
looking to putting together some education and programs for people so yeah it was it was someone else that was that was driving that for me rather than like you say right now there's this like i'm gonna start a coaching business and you're like well you know what's your niche do you have a niche maybe you should find that niche what's needed in that niche what's missing like what's missing in football right now i'm sure there's a lot of coaches that will listen to this and say you know what do we not have in football that could add real value is it return to play stuff is it speed stuff is it change of direction change of direction i think is the next gold mine um, in in invasion sport and in systematizing that for coaches i think it's going to be really valuable um but i found that there weren't many plyo people out there there weren't that many and it just so happened to be that i had had 12 13 years of doing plyos myself and then taking some of that into coaching those plyos and then seeing you know the the rewards that people were getting off the back end of it um, so yeah, it's uh, it's very it, it happened quite naturally for me to do that, and it was almost like, well, okay, um, how do I go about doing this and figuring out ways to to do that as a as a as a business? Yeah, so that's that's what I like about like stories similar to yours is that that's where the best businesses are created. I think that it's come from um, that natural progression. Um, with with that in mind, Matt around the business, because you mentioned courses and support for coaches and athletes, how does that actually look sort of day to day or what sort of experience do people get from, from um, the business? So, so we have um, our, our first initial offering was a, was a membership that offered basically as many kind of sports um, programs as you could think of in terms of a, a plyometric um, like insert so it's like a supplement to what you might be doing in the gym what you might be doing on the pitch speed work it was pliers where people could realistically do plyometrics anywhere like we have people all over the world like the best example is the the athletes that we have in the philippines that literally are just out on their street they had bad weather somewhere that's dry and they could do plyometrics on the flat move dynamically and develop over a period of time and we we've scaled everything so that we have you know starter intermediate advanced programs um return to play based movement stuff as well which i think is really really important because we had that kind of divide at the moment and i still see it so much we go from real clinical rehabilitational stuff to oh we're back to where we were before yeah um and and my my I think what's becoming more obvious to me is how much more value I can almost bring to that sector of performance in comparison to maybe like the the icing on the top sort of of like being more dynamic and powerful and explosive. It's actually bridging the gap between you know static rehab to dynamic performance based work. So um, so yeah, we have this big offering of all these different programs, and people can come and grab and go what they want um, and. And I think the also the new the unique part of it is that I filmed all the movements myself. So you've got someone that you know has a large background in that and, and has, has done it for a long period of time. So people can visually say, that's how I've got to do it. That's yeah. the intent I need in that movement. Um and we've scaled a system that kind of moves from really rudimentary movements to really dynamic stuff to movements that aren't necessarily plyometrics and in, in inverted commas that are more kind of deeper range of motion and yielding based actions um yeah and that kind of led to me writing the course at the beginning of this year which is an introduction to coaching plyometrics and it gives you basic science it gives you the skills to program then it gives you the skills to test 
and to track data and to see whether what you're doing is is impacting your athletes. Um, and yeah, and it's kind of organically grown over the, the last, um, I'd say 18 months is really started to move in the direction that we want it to. Um, and now we're doing face-to-face -face seminars, did one in Ireland in November, and now doing um, one in New York um, and London in February. Um, yeah. So, and, and it's kind of based around the course in terms of how I deliver it, but it also has a practical element, which people, if you haven't seen someone move in a dynamic nature that's maybe from the track and field community, you start to open your eyes like, oh, okay, this is how athletes can move. Um, so, and I think that's a really valuable part is, is that visual um, and aesthetic and, and sound as well. So hearing someone hit the ground effectively, you're like, oh, okay, that's dynamic movement. <laughs> it's not what I thought it was when I, I'm trying to get my athletes to move. Okay, this is where I, I'd like my athletes to be sort of thing. So, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's really moving quite well. So, um, yeah, I appreciate the question. No, I, one thing I was going to say from the start is, um, we're, obviously we're going to have a discussion about numerous different topics on the podcast, but I would say go and follow the work that you do because visually you take a lot more, don't you, from, um, what you the, the content that you're putting out and especially the way that you do it as well. I think it's great. There's so much value in there. But hopefully we'll be we'll get that <laughs> aligned with the conversations we're going to have today. But obviously it's a it's a skill, isn't it, that, that you need to see. And like you say, there's a lot of things to be taken away from actual seeing the videos. So I would say to people, make sure you go and follow and, and look at some of the content and work that you're putting out there as well. You mentioned just before about sort of defining plyometrics. This must be something that you talk about a hundred times a day, but the definition of plyos, can you just start us on that? What what are plyometrics and what is just jump training or, or dynamic movements? Yeah. Um yeah, I you know, you say you must have said it a few times. I've I, I have said it a few times, but I will continue to beat the drum until you know you're bleeding from the ears, sort of thing, until we get this, we get this built into our eyes and ears. Um, but Plyometrics to me is a, a movement that has a landing and a takeoff in the sequence of action. Um, and when it's pretty fast, if you were to say, oh, that movement looks fast, what they're doing is fast, it's probably quite plyometric. That is, for me, the easiest way to describe a plyometric. You can bring in all these fancy words like the stretch shortening cycle, like elasticity, being reactive. If it looks fast to the eye, and there's a landing and a takeoff. To me, it's plyometric. Mm. Um, we have a lot of research to suggest that when we have a landing portion to a jumping-based action, we are able to increase the amount of force that we're going to be receiving on the body. If you're to start from a static motion and you're trying to create momentum from like a counter-movement jump, we know straight away that it doesn't have the forces that you get with a landing. And in doing so, we we call upon our tendons and our tendons are our best friends when it comes to dynamic movement and locomotion. Because in doing so, we we hold the muscle in a little bit more of a of a static isometric pose rather than trying to like lengthen and shorten it in a, in a kind of in a slow action. When we pull on that tendon and the tendon has to do that tug but we get really dynamic reactive elastic kind of responses from the tendon and also we get quite a lot more reflexive kind of 
you could almost class it as free energy. It's not muscular-based effort. So we had that landing and takeoff portion. It's relatively fast. It's probably plyometric. We can go into ground contact times, um, which is very broad in, in the way that it's talked about. Um, we assume that this point two five is is our golden kind of zone of plyometrics. Um, if you're to creep over into point two six, does that make it not plyometric? I know you could say that there needs to be a boundary, but it's still probably relatively fast. Um, but we, you know, we have a, we've had one researcher that said that time um which was schmidt bleacher back in the early 90s late 80s um, and we haven't had anything to kind of renew that and or anyone to really say anything different but again we do have research to support that anything that crosses over the point three for a landing and takeoff uses less of the tendon the more time we spend on the ground the more yield we're likely to get around a range of uh, around a joint and that range of motion is to be larger in terms of the depth that you might fall into a jump. So if you to imagine you're to fall, land on two feet, if you're to compress the whole body and drop your heel to uh, your bum to your heels, the likelihood is that's going to become much more muscular in terms of the effort that's driven. Whereas if you're to land and overcome that and you're really stiff, you're going to get a real pop off of the floor. And that pop is going to come from the tendons, as we spoke about before. Yeah, so that's yeah. that's how I I see plyometrics. Hundred percent. You've you've also mentioned before about athletes working around the world with no equipment, essentially, and that's what comes across on a lot of your content is um, that there isn't much equipment used. It's you you in the ground, essentially. When you go into the into gyms right across the the football world, you see all these hurdles, you see boxes, and obviously there's a time and a place for those to be used. Not saying to take those out, but do you feel like they're potentially overused and maybe taking us away for what we're actually trying to achieve if if plyometrics are the, are the aim? Yeah, yeah. My uh, good friend Chris Speed uh, messaged me yesterday. He was like, "Why do people buy hurdles?" And uh, and he he put like a like a dow stick just he balanced it on like a box or something like that and he was doing some jumps over it he's like and i was like because someone's packaged it really nicely together and it looks sellable and you have this flashy piece of equipment that you're like well i've got to use it i put a, i did a post a while ago about hurdles and how people have no idea how to space them <laughs> they they always jump over them the wrong way yeah and believe me, I've seen two athletes have really bad ankle injuries from standing on the top of a mini hurdle and then it reflexing back off and then spraining their ankle because of it. Mm -hmm. um, so what it does for me is it it drives the external stimulus being the outcome goal rather than the quality of the ground-based or the quality of the landing being the goal. Um, so it also becomes a thing as well where let's say you've got 10 athletes do they all need 10 different hurdle spacings potentially <laughs> and are you going to rearrange them have you got 10 sets of 10 hurdles so so i just say just get rid of them just get rid of them use the ground to elicit that stimulus which is more force more speed but the number one thing that you require from or sorry for a, a plyometric landing is either gravity or its velocity into that movement and obviously you can get that from gravity instead of using a box why don't you jump jump into the air mm. using using your own 
what I class as self-selected full height. So if you jump into the air, when you land on that next landing, you've selected how high you're going to jump into the air. The likelihood that you've selected correctly is probably much more um, reliable than a coach pushing you off of a certain box. Yeah. They say, oh, I reckon you're about 45 centimeters and ready for that. Are they? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Have you got loads of data to support that? Okay, fair enough. If you do, great. I, you know, I'd rather have a 12, 13 year old athlete come up to me and say, right, cool. We're just going to jump on the spot. Let's let, let's allow you to regulate how high you're jumping. That's going to give you a certain amount of force on the next landing. And then we're going to use that as a way to monitor what you're doing. If you overcook it in the first one, you're probably going to go, okay, cool. Right. Let me go back. Let me start it again. I have, I see it all the time with, with, uh, with triple jumpers. They run in, they run in too hard. They do a hop and they go, oh, okay. That's too fast. Yeah, I'm going to regulate that myself. Okay, I'm going to chill it down 10%. Come in. Okay, now I can use that force and I can move through that movement. So self-regulation is a really powerful tool in what I class my form of plyometrics is locomotive plyometrics. It's moving in space. It's not using an external stimulus to to elicit those ground reaction forces. So don't they sometimes it's a bit of a crutch, isn't it? Because you, the people maybe not knowing the technical side of what they're trying to achieve as much. You put hurdles out because this is now this is now our target without actually thinking about what we're we're actually trying to achieve. The same with a box, isn't it? I'm box I'm jumping on that box height rather than thinking about what what are we actually doing this for? Yeah, it's uh it's very much a case of people won't dive into the education of it and the literature and, and really understanding the training method. You know, everyone's got all the gym based squatting, deadlifting, technical bits. People have done it a thousand times over, Mm. but plyometrics is, is, is difficult to, to dig into, to figure out yourself, to, yeah, I guess build your own education around it. And that's one of the number one reasons why I put together the course. Um, because I wanted to give people a, a tool to go back to all the time and say, you know, you can just use ground-based movement and it can really develop an athlete over, you know, five to eight years. I, I honestly don't feel like you need to bring in a box until someone is really kind of at the elite end and we're up, like looking for new ways to bring about a stimulus. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, ultimately, velocity is if you run in over 10 meters and then try to to hop on a single leg, I can guarantee you 90 percent of the population of athletes that you train cannot do three hops in a row that look any good. (laughs) And it's like, should that be a really fundamental skill that like 90 percent of athletes should be able to do? But the problem is, is 90 percent of coaches don't know how to coach it. They don't know what they're looking for. So like you say, they chuck in a, a hurdle and then it all goes to pot. Then like you're what do you expect them to do? They can't do it on the flat. So why are you chucking a hurdle in there? Oh, well, it's gonna regulate what they, well, it's not because they can't do it anyway. Can't handle those forces. Yeah, no, 100 percent You the other thing from like videos like yours that you put out and others that where you see true plyometrics is the intent that goes behind the movements, isn't it? You see some people going through the motions when they're doing things like hopping and you're like you're probably not getting what you you're intending to get out of that. Whereas when you watch someone truly putting that intent behind the exercise, it's a big, big difference, isn't it? And that's maybe what is missing um, in terms of a coach's education is is coaching that intent and what we're actually trying to get out of the exercise. 
yeah there's there's a real there's a real kind of barrier and crossover um and that i think sits at around about three and a half to four times body weight and people will sit behind that safe zone at like two and a half to three and, and that's where they feel is their like their limit of intent and they, they won't creep past that so mm-hmm. they'll they'll sit at you know more basic kind of pogo leaps where they're just leaping on the spot when you start to bring in things like hopping on one leg that's when you're starting to push to like four and a half five times body weight so people shy away from trying to coach it teach it and actually do it as, as an athlete um and where that crossover comes in is where you have to start being quite i call it being quite violent with the floor you've got to start attacking this thing because if you don't you're going to land and then think well now i've got to try and do something when we want you to be effectively striking the ground um underneath you um and yeah like i said before being quite violent with it yeah 100 percent Matt, I wanted to pull from your background of football, of playing, and yeah. taking your knowledge now. And if you were to, if you were to be coaching Matt back then and preparing him for football, what would be maybe some of the differences or tweaks you make to to your preparation? Um, I think that I would number one, I would not do as much kind of aerobic volume and I would concentrate so much more on the speed and dynamic side of training and that's not just because I'm a I'm at that end of the kind of coaching continuum of I'm I'm up at this speed stuff and there's coaches down doing more aerobic based conditioning stuff it's because every season I would get to get to the the first two three four five games and the only thing that was getting me in shape was playing 90 minutes of football. Yeah. So assuming that that was going to help me every year, get me in great shape. It's just, it's just not looking at the demands of the sport and mm-hmm. seeing that I did so, it's just so hard to mimic what you're, what you're doing in, in that period of time. So why not work on being more dynamic, being being better in terms of a high frequency of repeatability of, of a certain type of thing. So whether it's being able to do higher intensity sprints, but doing a high volume of those being building that up over a period of time. Um, I think once you build in a bit of a bit more of a speed reserve, you can start to understand that, okay, I know that within football, I'm probably going to be ambling around at about 65 to 75% for honestly about 90, 85% of the game. There really isn't that much of a high intensity in terms of you know your maximum speed or whatever. But I know that if I work on my max speed, that 65 or 75% is going to be better than the next guys. If yeah. my maximum is, is you know, if, it's, if my out and out speed is quicker than yours, my 65, 70% is going to be quicker than yours. That's that's where I feel like I would have done a lot more. And it quickly showed when I moved into more track and field-based stuff because of how much quicker and more dynamic I got within such a short period of time when I left behind a lot of just just going on runs. And I think, why was I going on a run? What what was I gaining out of that? Is it just like a tick box in my head? It's like the like the old traditional stuff for boxers. They've got to feel like they've got to get out and run on the road. 
um is that yeah is it more of a of an emotional kind of regulation to be like yeah i'm getting fit but actually i need to be looking more at the specific demands of of what i'm doing regularly in the game i played center half when i was when i was a footballer um and i was ironically i was quite a dominant player in the air mm. you know would have working on jumping benefited me even more it could have done would have I, I I always look at it as well that I struggled with with acceleration and and like a turn and change of pace sort of thing. So it might be in like the two, the first kind of two three or four steps. I always struggled to like turn a corner and then sprint and things like that. That's where I think I would have made my money really doing a lot more of that stuff. And it showed actually when I moved then into basketball into into track and field i had to work a lot more on my like static explosiveness once i'm upright and i'm and i'm moving i was pretty effective at, at top speed um but it took me a while to get there and i think that would have been a lot more valuable because ironically football is very short in fact there's not many times where you do sprint for 50 meters no. very very rarely so that's where i think i would have i was seeing most value if I was to coach my younger self now. There's no better time than now to join our online community. We've got some great content on there already, but 2023 is going to bring some incredible content for the community as well as opportunities to connect with coaches right around the world. Literally, we've had every corners of the globe covered with people signing up to the community, which is great to see. We've got webinars coming this year on nutrition, on working with female players, um, on plyometrics and loads of other areas as well. So make sure you head over to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign yourself up there. It'll give you a free month. For 30 days, you can have free access to the, to the community, see what it's all about. After the free month, it's only £4.99 per month going forward. So go and check it out. Go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign yourself up there and claim your free month. Here's part two of the podcast with Matt McInnes-Watson. I think to add on to what you were saying about getting fit through football, which I fully agree with, is the fact that at a certain level, I don't think you look at many players once they've played a few games and think they're they're gassed, they're struggling with their, their aerobic fitness. There obviously there's going to be a few, but that's where we seem to focus so much time, whereas we do probably point out a lot of players were like, yeah, they don't change direction quick enough. They're not, they're not quick enough off, off the mark. And like you say, that's a massive area that you can be working on where it's essentially being used for something else where I don't really feel like there's too many players that will actually benefit from it because generally fitness levels are pretty good, aren't they? And they're going to get better from playing. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, aerobic fitness as well. Like season to season, you're not going to lose much. No. You're really not. Your speed, on the other hand, is going to plummet. Like two, three weeks, if you don't top up on speed stuff, you lose it. <laughs> Strength stuff, you'll keep it. Yeah. You might be a bit sore if you didn't lift for six months and then try to lift, but I can guarantee you, like one RM basic strength, you're not going to be far off of it. Mm. You keep those qualities. Aerobic capacity is so easy to keep ticking over, but speed, being dynamic, being explosive, you've got to train it. You've got to keep those in there. You've got to dose it throughout the season, even if it's the smallest amount, to keep that there. Otherwise, when the championship crunch time comes, you start to tail off and you're plateauing or even getting worse. You know, what does that say? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, 
you know, talking to my friends, my friends aren't any, you know, in terms of sports performance and stuff. And they're like, oh, Henderson, he just loses his legs and stuff at certain points in the game. And I'm like, you, you know, you could look at it and say repeatability of being able to change direction effectively later on in the game. Is is he not doing that sort of training? He could argue a thousand other things as well. But if you were to look at it purely in that given, you know, what he's done previously to it, could that be a, a way for him to get back to playing deeper into games and being effective at that stage that could be it that, mm. you know it, it could definitely be it um yeah it's uh unfortunately you know we've in every sport it doesn't matter what sport you go into there's always that we you know we continue to train the same way because we've always done it and, and that's the way that it's always worked you're never going to get rid of that kind of hero feeling of you know the harder we train in terms of you know if we're feeling like we're working hard then we you know we're, we're gonna we're gonna win when yeah. actually being smarter and actually doing you know, high percentage stuff could be the winning formula to it. Yeah, definitely. I wanted a bit of a fun topic now because off the back of the World Cup, obviously there's been some incredible performances from teams, but individually and the speed of some of these players now is, is pretty scary. But I just wanted to get your sort of technical views on players like Mbappe. Obviously the speed is a massive part of his game. But there's a lot of quick players that are nowhere near as effective. So what is it that jumps out for you straight away, like in terms of areas that you notice where that is a big difference from from him to someone else who's probably equally, if not a little bit slower, but up there in terms of speed? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I remember I, again, you know, watching watching the the England game um, with a, with a few of the lads, and uh, the big thing was. I th- I'm sure there was a there was a moment where Mbappe was taking on Carl Walker, and they're like, Carl Walker's quick, and Carl Walker's kind of in line with Mbappe. Mbappe's got the ball at his feet. Mm. Um, again, it comes back to speed reserve. Mbappe's not running at 100 percent in that given moment because he has to control the ball. Yeah. So his speed reserve is better. Like he he is faster than Carl Walker in that given moment in the game it might not be if they were to line up a you know a track and do a 100 meter sprint or whatever that he might be faster in that moment but I'm sure it was towards the second half where where, where there was that moment where they were chasing each other down the down the bar lines and yeah. speed reserve is obviously something that Mbappe's got in him he's he seemed pretty good deep into the game in terms of being able to carry the ball at speed um, and I think that that's why he was effective for what he's doing. Obviously, the the skills with being able to handle a ball at that speed, like he's not, let's say in that given moment, it was probably a hundred percent of what he could handle at that at that time in in the game. Um, <clears throat> you've got to do that stuff. You've got to work with a ball at very high speeds to see a crossover. Mm-hmm. You can't see there being a large crossover if you you say in bowl is to step onto a football pitch and you're to assume that he's going to be you know the the greatest footballer ever because he's so fast well no he needs that specific skill set at that specific speed and i also think that someone like cristiano ronaldo in his prime was really effective because of the way that he ran he doesn't have a high carryover and i think a a low swinging carry of a of a sprint is really effective because you constantly knock the ball mm. so it's like those sort of small nuances like he wouldn't necessarily step onto a, a track 
and be that effective at, at racing, you know, a world-class sprinter because they are building their technical model around purely around physics, obviously what fits their body, but Cristiano Ronaldo has found a niche in that he can be effective at carrying the ball as well as being fast at the same time amongst those players around him. You know, is it just so happened to be that the kind of stars aligned and that his technique was like that anyway, and that fit perfectly to how you would carry a ball? Things like that you you have to consider um, being a little bit of kind of nature nature nurture sort of stuff. But um, yeah, I found I found Mbappe was his transition from acceleration into top speed was really effective. There are some guys that are really good at like the first kind of five or ten yards. And you might see them burst past the player and then it's kind of like they're making then a decision. But I feel like he has an ever building kind of speed where he transitions then into upright running and you're like, oh shit, he's still shifting at this point. Um, and I think that that adds a lot of value with attacking players. Um, it might not add as much value for like a, a central midfielder. They're going to be a lot of short changes of direction where you know the first five or 10 yards is where they're most effective when you've got wide players or players up top, I think that transitional acceleration into upright running, that's where you're going to make your money. Obviously you need to be fast in acceleration, but to, to carry past those other players, I think that that transitional speed is really, really important. I suppose that's where you've got the space on the pitch as well. Like you mentioned in comparison to the central midfielder. And then there's the other side of it, which is like the insight, isn't it? The game insight. Like that is one thing I noticed from him is that, He's moving before the, the actions even happened. He's noticing things before it's even happened a lot of the time, which gives him that little bit of space, which he doesn't even really need because he's like you mentioned, he's so quick in acceleration and up into top speed. So it was a fascinating watch, uh, watching players that out, wasn't it? Yeah, it's good. Really, really good. It's uh well, and again, like I always like the little moments that come out that are kind of seen as kind of athletic feats. Um, who was the lad? Was it the Moroccan lad that went for a header? And then like, everyone's like analyzing how high he jumped and all this sort of stuff. And people have analyzed Ronaldo before and how high he jumps. And then I'm like, yeah, it, like I get it. It's impressive. And I, but it, it's cool to, it's cool to pick those bits out. And then people ask me like, what, why is he effective or what he's doing and stuff? So yeah, it's uh Mbappe is going to be, he's going to be a special player over the next four years, I think. Um, so I would just like to see him leave leave the French leagues and actually come to a proper league. <laughs> oh, definitely. You just mentioned there about those insights, though. I think they're really important to, to highlight because that, for me, is what talks a player's language. Because when you're trying to, maybe you're trying to speak to a player about the importance of plyometrics and it is a Ronaldo-type player or an attacking-type player and you take that clip of the header, even though it's one instance in a game and one moment, that suddenly makes sense to the player, doesn't it? So it is really important to highlight that and in different positions as well, because that's what's something I want to bring up in a little bit is um, how you'd go around dealing with different types of players. Um, maybe something we can tackle now, actually, and then we'll go, go back to some of the other stuff I have planned. And with that in mind, like I've spoken to people about this before, you've got your quick players, your attacking players, like your Mbappe's, your Ronaldo's, but obviously not all at that level. But then you've very much got your technical players, like maybe that are playing in a different position. What? How would your approach differ between the two? I think similar to what I mentioned before, you're like one of my favourite players ever is Paul Scholes. His ability to to 
effectively change direction. Like you, I think the phrase you'll see in football is is more like turning on a dime and just being able to open up the pitch in ways that you're like, shit, like I can't even, when I receive the ball like that, I don't even assume that there's space in, in how it is. And there's always a, there's always like a football brain thought to it where like, oh, he just sees things like that. And obviously all these parts link together and they're, he's effective at what he does because he's he sees things differently. He He's got the knowledge to know where certain players are because of the, the previous play and all this sort of stuff. But also he has the, he has the physical ability to change direction like that, to yeah. turn how he does. So if I'm, if I'm looking at more centrally based people that are in the thick of stuff, I will have them work on more multi-directional based skills, whether it's landing and takeoff based stuff, whether it's, you know, shorter agility based change of direction stuff. Um, but giving them the ability to be kind of explosive out of short steps and being able to, so when you're taking a turn and trying to beat an opponent and to find space, just one or two steps is enough to sometimes open that part of that play up so that you can make a, a pass to to move the ball up the pitch into a different sequence of play. Um, and I found that there are, there are often some really decent players that are talked about and I and I noticed that when I was playing um football as well you're like they're really technically gifted but it always seems to be the bigger guys you know you play like a Sunday league football thing these these guys are really effective at what they do like they're quite technically good but as soon as there's a, a a turn of play where they have to open things up and be kind of dynamic in that given second and then get the ball out of their feet quickly you're like shit they, they always miss that chance mm-hmm. um, and it's because of that I think you create massive space in the tiniest portions of time, I think it's like a split second. It's like a tenth, two tenths of a second where you've changed play, someone's taken a wrong step and you've moved past them. And then you're like, shit, there's that given moment for us to now create something. Um, so that's that's where I like to, to focus on basic kind of being able to rotate well, being able to change direction in a frontal plane um, and also being able, really good with breaking action which, are, which we'll, we do a ton of in plyometrics. Are you able to move into space, being able to break and then come back out of that movement, um, I think is is really valuable for for those sort of central players. Um, now, I, I also look at like different body types if you were to swing out to like out towards more kind of lateral wide base players. And I always, <clears throat> I always like to kind of look at those guys and think like what, you do sometimes get slight differences in players. And I think, I do think the game is sorting, sort of kind of shifting towards, you do see a lot more like Kyle Walker based kind of players, especially playing at right back and left back that are just strong lads that are obviously fitted well to play against someone like Mbappe who's fast and powerful and strong and stuff. But you've also got this kind of whip it up and down the, up and down the flanks that are type of lads that will just run all day. They're never going to have an ounce of fat on them sort of thing, but they're just light, dynamic, kind of elastic guys. And I think I find a lot of value in training a lot more sub-maximal, higher volume-based elastic stuff. So like I love doing like long periods of bounds with those sort of athletes, um, kind of very, very dynamic, kind of bilateral, horizontal-based, kind of broad, repeat broad jumping stuff. Um obviously they have to still have that ability to change direction well, but 
you find that because they sit a lot more in that flank, they, they do a lot more linear up and down kind of motion. Um, so I I tap into that. Like I'll, I'll go more into that sort of stuff, teach them how to hop well on one leg, teach them how to bound well. And it might be that I would do a little bit more curved base running as opposed to so much change of direction. And, you know, if you if I look at all my, if I was to look at uh, position specific stuff, they're all going to get all of those, you know, all of the components that we'll speak about, whether it's change of direction, agility, how much forward based frontal plane, linear, um, backwards pedaling stuff. They'll all get some of that. It's just how much you give a percentage of that to a certain given position. And I think that's a really easy way to like bucket groups of players. Yeah. I I will like I always see this as well is that I think a centre half needs to train like a centre forward does. Like I, I think if you're facing a, a centre forward, why would you not want to be dynamic like a centre forward? It's always yeah. you oh you put the slow lad at the back. It's always like as as soon as you come up through the school ranks and stuff, you think where's the slowest player? You'll probably point other than being other than being the, the keeper, the centre half, sometimes maybe a centre mid never really see that many dynamic center mid players and obviously people gravitate to their positions as as to their kind of body type and all this sort of stuff but why not train these guys to be fast like the strikers are um Mm. so so i I think i think that's really effective way in terms of grouping athletes so yeah you just look at what those key variables are and see how much of a percentage you might do of forward linear sprinting as opposed to more agility or change of direction as opposed to more curved base running um or you know that could be also fit towards where you might fit certain plyometrics i love what you spoke about before around there not being like a specific sort of matrix or a spectrum of training that you move along it and that you focus on different areas that you, you focus on it all um at different times I think that's great because we're very much getting the mindset and maybe it's from movement quality stuff and getting ready for strength training that that a lot of clubs have that in mind, which I think is great. But from the stuff that you spoke around, around plyometrics, I think it's really important to highlight that. So can you touch on that a little bit? Because I don't feel like I've done that justice at all, but you know, you know what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. So the, the typical model is what's seen as like the plyometric progression model. Um, where you start at A and you finish at at Z or whatever it might be. Um, And because of the, like reiterating what we were speaking about with the, um, with the boxes and not using hurdles and and an external stimulus, how I see it is that you have a group of movements and there are only a certain group of movements that you can do. And you have those movements all the time within your program. But it just, you, you again, you undulate how much of that movement you do, the intensity of the movement that you use, um, and the volume that you use in a given part in the season. You know, if you've got a, if you've got a game on a Saturday, the likelihood is that your plyometric session on a Thursday is not going to be crazy intensive, and you're going to be doing hops for speed or whatever. You're going to be touching on just keeping things, you know, excited and 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 stimulated in a way that prepares you for the game. You know, deep in the in the off season, you're gonna be working more on those higher intensity based movements. So going back to the progression, 
the progression comes from how do we get to depth jumps? How do we get to falling off of boxes? Because it's the most intense form of plyometrics that we can do kind of it in inverted commas. And where I see the problem with that is, is we quickly get to a performance ceiling. We quickly hit that performance ceiling. Number one is because I don't think coaches are effective enough at coaching all the bits that lead up to those typical progressions that we see. We just see, okay, that athlete can do that. Cool. We'll do a bit of that. And then we move on to the next part. Mm. Um, whereas as soon as an athlete can learn how to bilaterally move on two feet to move to, you know, the next step up, step up in intensity, which is a split bilateral stance and then an exchanging bilateral stance and then into single leg movement, which is a bound from right to left. And then the most intense form of movement is a hop where you're hopping just on one single leg continuously. Once you've nailed those drills or movements or exercises, whatever you want to call them, you just improve the skill and quality of that movement. And that will elicit higher speeds, higher ground reaction forces, which will create larger adaptations. And these skills, if you want to get better at these movements, the physical qualities will come quickly and the skill domains will, they will slowly build over periods of time. What I mean by skill domain is, are you able to hit the ground with a hop? Let's say you're running in, as I mentioned before, over 10 meters, and then you're trying to repeatedly hop on one leg. It takes an enormous demand of skill to understand how much force you're about to you're about to receive on that single leg at such a speed so you have to be able to anticipate the ground so pre-activate musculature before you hit the ground you have to stabilize in a much faster rate as to what you were to do if you were to do it from a static position you've got to couple that energy effectively you've got to use that energy and you've got to get out the other end of it these are all skills when people talk about things like stiffness, you know, being as stiff as you can on the ground, what I'm intrigued by is not necessarily is the tissue stiffness, but the joint stiffness, all of the components singing together at the same time. That to me is a skill. That is a neurological pattern that says, I have to switch on this muscle, this muscle, this muscle, this tendon's going to do this. This is going to be in this position. I'm going to understand that if my body's slightly off and tilted to the side, if my foot's off from this position, I'll make those corrections. These are all neuromuscular skill-driven components. And this takes, unfortunately, this takes a few years for you to start to get effective at that. But once you start to do ground-based ground -based plyometrics over a period of years and you use, you know, those four or five movements in all these different forms of intensity, um, at different levels of, of a kind of spectrum of, of kind of, as I said, the intensity scale of it being rudimentary, kind of sub-maximal, maximal, or even kind of in a more yielding kind of outside the plyometric domain. Once you're doing that year on year, and you're just doing small doses of it at certain times in the year and larger doses at other times, five years down the line, you have a completely different athlete. Yeah. And like polar opposite to the spectrum you've got someone that okay it's just a typical footballer as opposed to someone that you start to go shit they are they're an athlete as well as a footballer they're not just seen as a footballer this guy can move yeah 100 percent. 
With that in mind, I was going to ask as well, and I know you've talked about a lot of the intricacies working with different people, positions, um, even type of player, body types, and it goes on and on and on. So I know that the answer to this is probably it depends. But um, if we were to say there's certain exercises or drills to keep him throughout a season, bearing in mind that we will fluctuate on how much we do and all the rest of it, where would your mind go to with that? Is it is it is there going to be certain ones that come to the to the forefront? The uh, the best phrase ever from my mentor is hopping never leaves the program. So one legged hopping, where you're propelling yourself right, 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 right. At any given point in the season, you are doing a small dosage of hopping. Yeah, and that for me is when when you've learned how to hop. Obviously, if you can't hop and you haven't tried it, don't start hopping all year long. You need to develop the skills to be able to hop. Yeah. But once you know how to hop and you're effectively able to, you know, do multiple sets of it, come out the back end of a session, not feel like you, you know, you've you've ran a, a marathon, you understand the intensity of hopping. When you come away from it and say you just reintroduce it six months later, you go, oh, shit. The speed of this movement, because when you're hopping on a single limb, in order for you to continue to stand up and to move, you've got to swing that leg through at twice the speed as, as what you would be doing when you bound. Mm. You are really cycling that leg through and you can't hide in hopping because that leg is about to slam into the ground again mm. and again and again. You can't get away from those high reaction forces and it keeps that stimulus there. It keeps that understanding there. You know, if you, you know, people can, people can find kind of similar scenarios with things like if you've, let's say you've done a big block of back squatting or some heavy training. And let's say you got to a stage where you're like, okay, cool. When I put a hundred kilos on my back, it just feels easy now. If you go away from that for six months, you come back to it and you put a hundred kilos on your back. You go, oh shit, I have not done this in a long time. It's that same sort of feeling, but tenfold with dynamic movement. So yeah. hopping is hopping is number one for me, all day long. Never leaves the program. Bilateral leaping as well is is also pretty preferable because I find the bilateral leaping or pogos, whatever you want to call it, um, is a segue into all other movements. You'll start with bilateral movements and you'll end up at hopping. So you're probably going to use uh, leaping as well as hopping year long. And for me, that is that's gold. If you can do a bit of hopping, now's your perfect start, right? Beginning of the new year. Yeah. If you can do a little bit of hopping now, see what you're like this time, January 2024, if you hop, let's say once a week, every week for the rest of this year. Hmm. Tell me how much you've changed in that given time. Yeah, it's a challenge, challenge right there. <laughs> well, just off the back of that then, so that's something that can stay in the program all year round. If we have a window of opportunity, whether it's a games postponed or off season or whatever it is, where would you go to then? Are you talking about like where within a week, like where? Yeah, would you... yeah. yeah. So if we, if we maybe had a couple of weeks and it was like a window of opportunity, we can really take advantage of this. Obviously, we've got that the, the hops and the and the bilateral bounds in throughout the. Um, season that's something that we're sort of sprinkling through throughout the season but this is an opportunity now where yeah. would you go with that 
obviously it's dependent on the the type of week that you've got let's say that you're doing two or three snc sessions a week um you could just i have a lot of excuse me i have a lot of guys that do a, a plyo session before they lift mm-hmm. and it works really well some people just can't handle that intensity of, of doing that sort of bout of work but then lifting if you are doing pitch-based stuff two you know two or three four times a week and you're lifting a couple times a week you could say well i'm going to take those two larger plyometric sessions and i'm going to split them up and let's say that you're doing high speed running on one day or you're doing a lot of like breakaway plays you could prime that with some upright like bounding relaxed bounding something that's going to prep me ready for that if you're doing some heavy lifting you could be doing some more intense bilateral you know maximal stuff for height if you're doing a recovery session you could then prime that with lots of really rudimentary high volume lower leg stuff and that's gonna that's gonna really aid in terms of kind of flushing the lower leg you're gonna put put the um the lower extremities through high volume stuff it's gonna probably support things like tendon health um and then it could be that let's say you're doing more metabolic stuff add in some more yielding deeper range based jumping actions something that's going to challenge posture stability at those deeper ranges um and find ways in which you can see similarities some people use similarities as a way to, to program it some people flip that and they'll do opposites yeah and there is no right or uh, you know right or wrong way to do it it's finding time in your program too so don't feel like you have to do you know start a session here finish a session here done plyometrics done mm. three days later they do the same i think exposure over a period of time like a week even if you did five sessions or seven sessions whatever a little bit is still equal to doing a couple of sessions you can still get that stimulus to the body the body is like i said is exposed to that stimulus over that period of time it will reset over those coming days after you've done that and then you again then look to dig into maybe the same stimulus something a bit more something a bit less depending on where you're at and what that time of um, period of time within the season is is looking like brilliant great information that matt i want to be respectful of your time i want to move on to some of the quick fire questions that we finished the podcast with the first of which i ask everyone who've been some of the biggest influences on your career so far I mean, my my mentor is is everything in terms of in terms of that. Um, my my mentor Eric is was my coach. My my track coach has really become <clears throat> it's become kind of a call it a father father figure. Um, but it's someone that I've found. Um, I have a constant flow of conversation, and he challenges me all the time with new thoughts, new ideas. Um, as really, yeah, it's just really. You know, if I, I'll ask him a question and he'll, you know, he won't give me the answer all the time. He'll tell me where to look for it, why I should be looking for it in this place. You know, and he constantly looks to develop himself as a, a guy in his mid-70s. And, it, and it's kind of really awe-inspiring for me to, to look at someone like that. And he still does plyos. Can't yeah. be that. <laughs> which I which I love. That's like, a, that's like an ultimate goal is to do plyos, you know way into my 70s so 
yeah um ultimately he he's the number one influence um it's tough to to look at anyone else really um also have a, a another previous coach um his name's james he's an snc coach uh works for saints hmm. and he he was my snc coach when i was at university again another real someone that's challenged me a lot um has not kind of been an echo chamber to me but has been a real um you know I'll throw caution to the wind sort of thing and he'll always rein me back in and be like, yeah, but have you thought about this and this and this? Um, yeah, so it's, you know, I, I can look at people that I don't know as well. Um, but, you know, I just don't think that they ever influence me as to as much as the people that I communicate with week in, week out. Um, and people ask me about my mental Eric all the time. and I'm, I've had a conversation over email with him every week for... 13, 14 years. Hmm. Like, that's constant, constant, whether it's chit chat or whether it's we're digging into research, what are the implications of this? So yeah, that's who inspires me. And what would you say your biggest strength is as a practitioner? Um, I think not taking the standard route of, of a performance coach or physical prep coach I think that's been really a really unique way that it gives me a perspective that's really outside of the, the, the norm. Um, if you know, if I'm working with S and C coaches and I, I'll put something to them and they'll be like, "Wow, it, they, they really they see so much within a gym setting," and and I see so much within you know, I can coach performance with no equipment and anywhere. Um, and I, yeah, I think, I th yeah, I think that helps me within my niche, and it also helps me, yeah, just to see from a different perspective. Definitely, we've spoke about training younger Matt, but yeah. if you could speak to younger Matt and career wise and give some career advice, what would that top bit of career advice be? Be patient. My goodness, I'm so. I have I don't know whether it's it's like a it's like a good thing and a torturous thing like I'm I'll do something and then I'll be like right what's next <laughs> just let it let it be let let something do what it wants to do like I I think I fill my my time with too much and it I almost need to get rid of ninety percent of things focus on one thing yeah really effectively allow it to you know if it's educational whether it's programs whatever just allow it to do what it you want it to do rather than being like right done next thing yeah i'm so impatient like that um and <laughs> my daughter finds out quickly as well that i'm impatient in that and like she she's gonna become impatient because of it so i'm like no i need, <laughs> I, need I need to be um yeah just a little bit more present in what i've done or achieved or what i've you know set out to complete and and then look at it in a bit more detail maybe go back through it see if i can improve it. you know obviously i do those things but yeah just be better at that and last one mate what is your approach to cpd continue learning how how do you go about that obviously you've talked about mentors and, and influences and inspirations but how do you um go about continually improving um I speak to a lot of people. 
I have conversations with people a lot and I also ask a lot of questions mm. not to be afraid of of asking questions um <clears throat> and yeah not being not being afraid to just speak to people that you sometimes you think oh man, they're, they're never going to speak to me the last two years have taught me that is a complete lie yeah i've spoke to some people where they just they just give you something and it's like solves like world hunger in your in, in your mind of problems it's like, it's like that that much of value you're like wow i just didn't see that like that and and having that conversation just it's like conquered x y and z of all these issues that i've had within my programming or and yeah i think it's well, it, it's been my mentorship it's been conversations i i have i've not done that much kind of professional course development myself i've done so much more personal investigation because of a flow of conversation with my mentor hmm. challenging things asking questions setting aside my own goals to dig into something and say well what do i need to get there well i need to speak to this person and ask them about that and see how i can bring things together <clears throat> if you if you haven't quite you can't quite suss that out yourself i think it's a case of speaking to someone that can give you a bit of a guideline to how you might go about doing that but once you kind of get into a bit of a groove of it i think it's really effective ways to to learn um you know courses are great but you get so much more out of speaking to someone. Yeah, definitely. Now that that seems to be the the key answer from that question as well. So it's a, it's a common theme, but but it's there because it's so important. Uh, people need to listen to that and and take action on it. Matt, that's been absolutely incredible, mate. Thank you very much for coming on. We've gone just over the hours. So I hope I've not um, kept you over time, but I really appreciate you coming on. I think there's been some great um, content in there for people. Just to finish us up. If people want to keep in touch with what you've got going on with the with the business and just the content you put out, where would you where would you send them? Yeah, so yeah, thank you very much by the way for having me on. Sorry, my, my voice is like slowly dying towards the end of <laughs> the conversation. I realised how much I talk. Um, but yeah, they can a lot of uh, my kind of communication or <clears throat> stuff that I put out is on Instagram, and that's uh, McInnes Watson, M C I N N E S W A T S O N um or plus flyers which is our business um and you can go to pluspliers.com and, <clears throat> and find out all of our kind of resources whether it's programs educational stuff um but yeah send me a send me a message on instagram if you want to chat or you know learn about something um yeah and that's most where i am twitter i just can't suss out so i just, <laughs> just leave it <laughs> perfect mate yeah go and give matt a follow because some great stuff over on there and matt thanks again for coming on thanks so much cheers have a good one i know i've said this a few times but i could have spoke to matt all day um i think there's so much knowledge from him um and some really interesting thought processes and and just picking his brains was just amazing so i hope you took plenty from the podcast which i'm sure you did i would also highlight i mentioned in the episode about his podcast with david gray go only give that a listen as well david is a top guy obviously been on the podcast before they cover some great stuff they go a little bit more technical on the on the plyometric side um which i think is great obviously not so much focused around football but it's a great episode to listen to as well. So go and check that out on David's podcast. 
Also, make sure you are following Matt. He's McKinnis Watson on both Instagram and Twitter. I know he doesn't use Twitter as much, but he is over on Twitter. But make sure you check out his Instagram because a lot of the um, information that he's talked about on the podcast will become a lot more... Uh, you'll understand it a lot more when you when you see it in video format and that's what he does over on Instagram. He does some great educational work over on there so make sure you go and check it out. The other thing to check out is Matt's business. So Plus Plyos over on Instagram and also the website is plusplyos.com. So go and check that out as well. That's where he talked about his courses and all the information and content that he puts out around plyometrics. There's some great stuff on there as well. So make sure you support it. Go and give them a follow at least and check out some of the work that they're doing. And I really would appreciate it. On takeaways on this episode, this was really hard to narrow down. And to be honest, I make notes whilst we record on the podcast. But when I got into the conversation so much with Matt, I wasn't actually writing that much stuff down um, because I was just so intrigued with, with some of the stuff that he was talking about. But some of the things that jumped out was his story for creating his business was around the niche and it came very naturally, which is what we spoke about. If you're thinking of doing something similar, start at that point. I do think there's massive value in that. Obviously, people talk about like finding your why and things like that, but I think finding a niche in an area that, re- that you're really interested in, there's always going to be parts of a business and jobs and things that you've got to do. I've had a few this morning with, with taxes and all that sort of stuff. That, that, that they're just not enjoyable. But if your business is something overall that you enjoy and it's on a topic you enjoy, that is going to encourage you and that's going to give you the motivation you need. He talked about there being a potential opportunity around change of direction. There's going to be a lot of other topics around as well that you could really niche in on, but I think that is definitely one. Obviously, we've had Rich Clark on the on the podcast before that's been talking around agility, and he's done that. He's niched down on that area. And some of these guys are doing some great work because they're going in deep on these, these topics. So there's definitely a lesson to be taken there. The other area was the speed reserve information that he spoke about around Mbappe. So we gave the example of Mbappe and Walker in, in the World Cup um, and the fact that, that um, Mbappe had this reserve to, to go to to really essentially beat him in that race where he was even running with the ball. So it's developing that. That's the, that's the rationale behind doing speed work with players. Obviously, we're not all working with Mbappe, but we're, we're building this reserve for, for players um, that may come across situations similar to that deep into games. And then the other area that I thought was really interesting is when he discussed around centre-backs training like centre-forwards or attacking players because they're essentially the ones that they're in direct competition with. I thought that was really interesting. Not something I've thought about too much before, but a really interesting thought process and definitely something I'd like to hear back from coaches as well and what you thought about that. So as always, please give the podcast a share. This one, obviously, we're focusing in on football, but I think there's a lot of good takeaways for anyone working in team sports as well. So give it a share with anyone that you think will benefit from the episode. But then also reach out what you thought about that point about um, centre-backs preparing the same as centre-forwards. What do you think about that? Is that something that you feel like they'd benefit from or do you feel like it's different? Do you feel like we're preparing for different things? I'd really be interested in hearing your thoughts. But yeah, go and give Matt a follow. He put some great work out. 
and I appreciate everybody listening. Start of 2023, it's going to be a big year at Football Fitness Federation, so keep your eyes out because we've got loads of great stuff coming this year. I'm really excited for it. And thank you for listening to episode 220, and I will speak to you again next week in episode 221.